right, so this morning, uh, David, if we could get our purpose statement up here. I, uh, we were looking at this, to draw near to God as a church family through edification and praise for his glory. So it's interesting there, the purpose of gathered worship is to draw near to God. It's interesting because you could make an argument that we're already near to God. His spirit is all... His spirit is already in us. So why are we talking about drawing near to God? Is there some sense in which when we gather as a church, uh, God is here? Um, I'm not going to ask you to answer right now, but I'm curious what your answer to that question would be. If you had to take your Bible and answer that question, when we gather as a church, is God here in a way that's different from when you go back home today? Is God here? So let's talk about that this morning. And first of all, 1 Corinthians 14. We already read verses 23 through 25, but look at it again. You know, in verse 23, he's saying, if, if the whole church comes together and everybody's speaking in tongues, then if somebody who's not part of the church comes in. Pause right there. So part of what you see is going on there in the Corinthian church is that they had public gatherings. The purpose was for the whole church to gather, but the whole church gathered in an intentionally public way. Now, I know that you, we, we all just assume that's the case, but you realize it doesn't, that, isn't, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. We have a church website, right? Does every church have to have a website? No. Does our church website list our times and places of meeting? Yeah. Do we have to do that? No. In other words, could we, as a church family, gather totally in private? We have our own WhatsApp group, so it's like encrypted messaging, and nobody but us knows when we're going to gather, and nobody else is invited. We, we could do that if we were then all faithful to go back out into the world and do evangelism and reach people like we should. It would be okay for us to gather completely in private. And I know that's probably never even crossed your mind, but it would be okay. However, in Corinth, they were able to gather publicly, meaning they gathered in such a way that non-Christians could walk in. We gather in such a way that non-Christians could walk in, and we do that on purpose. Will we always be able to do that in the United States of America? I don't know, but we still can today. And so as long as we can, we're going to keep gathering with the door open and a website and an invitation for anybody who wants to, to come sit in our services. We don't design our services for them, but we welcome them. So he says, somebody walks in, verse 23, and in verse 24, he says, but if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So, two things to notice here. First of all, is that word really. What does the word really mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean God's not just here a little bit. God's here a lot. God's really here. That's not what it means. Because remember verse 23, they said, you're out of your mind. 
So we're talking about an unbeliever who comes in and he thinks this Christianity is just another man-made religion. You're just another one of all these religious crutches that people use. And then he gets so convicted that he comes to the conclusion, God's real. This God, there's a God who is really here. You understand what I'm saying? That's what the word really means. It doesn't mean God's here a lot. It means that contrary to what he thought when he came in, which is that you, you guys are confused, deluded, sad. He comes to the conclusion, you're right. God's here. God's with you. Now, what was it that convinced them that God was actually here? It was the conviction that came through the prophesying. And there's certainly disagreement about what prophesy means in the New Testament and in this passage. Um, and you can go back and hear the lessons we've taught on that before. But whatever it, exactly it means here, it is spirit-led ministry of the Word of God. It might be songs or preaching or pastoral exhortations or testimonies. It could include all of those things. But regardless, it is spirit-led ministry of the Word of God that's fitting for that situation. And through the ministry of the Word of God, that visitor gets convicted of sin. The Bible is cutting him up. It is showing the secrets of his heart. And he concludes, God is here. So why was God's presence evident? Because of the conviction that he experienced. So that's a good starting point for us. And it suggests that there is some sense in which God is especially present when the church gathers. But let's back up and get uh, background and then some things we want to avoid. So background really quickly. One, God is present everywhere all the time. That's what we, that's like the first question we teach our kids in catechism um, because the Bible teaches it abundantly. God is present everywhere all the time. Number two, God manifests his presence in particular ways. And again, that's all over scripture. Genesis chapter three, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden, some sort of manifestation of his presence all the way to revelation chapter 21, the dwelling place of God is with men. So even though God is present everywhere all the time, we don't experience that. But God manifests his presence in particular times and, and places. So that's number two. Number three, just couldn't talk about God's presence without including this verse. So I put it in foundations. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 16, 11. Number four, every Christian has been brought into the presence of God through Christ alone. The veil in the temple was torn in two. 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus died to bring us to God. Ephesians 2.13, in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. Hebrews 12, you have come to God's presence in the heavenly Jerusalem. So that is only possible, and it is entirely possible through Jesus, who is the perfect priest and perfect sacrifice who brings us to God. Number five, every Christian has the presence of God with him because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that the Spirit would dwell both with us and in us. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 20. Okay, so whatever we conclude about God's presence in gathered worship, it has to fit with that background. Any conclusions we come to that contradict that aren't, aren't going to be true or true. 
or right. Okay, so let me just very briefly mention a few dangers to avoid because there are a lot of ways to get off track here. Number one, leaving out the background. If you teach people that God is present in worship, but they don't know that it's Jesus who brings us to God or anything about Jesus giving the Spirit, or then you've got a big problem. They're going to be very confused. Number two, doing anything that implies that we earn God's presence through our worship. Who earned God's presence for us? And how was it 97% earned? 99% earned? No, he completely, so only Jesus and completely Jesus earns the right for us to have God's presence with us. So there's nothing we can do in our worship to earn God's presence. Number three, suggesting that the worship leader will bring us into the presence of God. Yikes. Who's the one worship leader who brings you into the presence of God? Jesus, right? Now, worship leaders can have a very important role, but it's not to bring you into the presence of God because Jesus brings you into the presence of God, and he already did. It's already done. So if we get the idea that we really need an anointed worship leader to get us into God's presence, we're dishonoring Jesus, honestly, by even talking like that. Number four, putting the emphasis on sensing God's presence in the space. I was reading a contemporary worship writer this week who was saying, through contemporary worship, we are creating a space in which we can invite God to come. <laughs> oh, ow, that's so bad, so far off of anything biblical. As we learned in John 4, worship is no longer about a particular place or a particular space. So to give people the impression that we need to sense God here, is just really, really, really to miss what the New Testament teaches about worship. So um, God is here in his place because his people are here, and he is with his people. So we don't need to try to sense his presence in the place. Number five, putting the emphasis on an ecstatic experience of God's presence. So we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, including how so many world religions use drugs to help their worshipers reach some kind of ecstatic experience. So we don't want to communicate to people that there's like a worship high, like a, a euphoria, like an almost out-of-body experience that you get when you, when you really worship. That is, that is really, really damaging. I'm not, I'm not saying that you might not have remarkable emotional experiences with God. Um, but that, that is, that, that's, that's not how you come into God's presence, nor is it the goal of, of gathered worship. Number six, <clears throat> we want to avoid seeking another Pentecost in each worship service. Um, and let me try to explain well what I'm talking about there. You're familiar with Pentecost, the Jewish holiday, which was the day that God chose when um, Jesus gave the gift of the Spirit as he had promised and the New Testament church was born among those first disciples who were waiting in Jerusalem. It is possible to approach worship as if in every service we're hoping Pentecost might happen again. That in this service we might have another Pentecost. And the problem with that is that Pentecost already happened 
we did receive the Spirit, and he hasn't left. Pentecost was not partial, and Pentecost didn't fail. And Pentecost didn't run out. Jesus gave to the church the gift of the Spirit, and we have the gift of the Spirit. And so, um, now, the big caveat to that, and I'll keep explaining this as we go along this morning. Of course, we want to see the Spirit work every time we gather. John 3, the wind of the Spirit that gives eternal life. I pray every week for that wind to blow here. Um, The demonstration of the Spirit in the preaching, we'll mention that in a minute. The manifestation of the Spirit in our spiritual gifts, we'll mention that in a minute. Ephesians 1, the revelation, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, enlightening the eyes of our hearts to know Christ better. We want all of that. And so it's, it's actually traditional in the Christian church, and we'll talk about this later too if we have time. It's traditional to talk about praying for the Spirit to come. But what we mean is come work. What we don't mean is the Spirit's gone and we need another Pentecost to get him back. That's not at all the case. Um, so we don't want to communicate that. Number seven, encouraging people to believe in God based solely upon their worship experience. Um, We may sometimes have very meaningful experiences with God, but we don't place our faith in our worship experiences. We place our faith in what Christ has done and what God has promised. Remember in 1 Corinthians 14, what convinced the unbeliever was not his worship uh, a worship euphoria or something. It was like conviction through the word that convinced them that God was real. So we're not trying to create an amazing experience in the hopes that someone will say, wow, God must be real because that felt so cool. Um, only the preaching of Christ crucified can save sinners. Now they may feel a lot in the process. Um, But without the word of the cross, there will not be uh, salvation and a right relationship with God. Number eight, we want to avoid teaching that a particular worship order leads to the presence of God. This has been a this has been an extremely influential idea in American Christianity since the 1940s. Um, And it has various forms, but um, most of them describe an order of something like praise and then worship or thanksgiving and then praise and then worship. And then you get to the end of this kind of trajectory within a service. You come to the end of this trajectory and that the result is that you come into the presence of God the Spirit falls, the gifts of the Spirit begin to work, and spiritual healing and things like that happen when through that series of steps we come into the presence of God. And though that those ideas have been very influential, and you can read that history in this book, History of Contemporary Praise and Worship. Um, I don't love everything about this book because I don't theologically agree with the authors at all, but the history they trace is very interesting. If this is if this is something that is of interest to you, you will love this book. If you want to know why American worship looks like it does today, read this book. Um, they trace the history uh, very well. And my, my point is just to say that the core idea 
that you progress through a series of steps in a worship service and come into the presence of God. That idea, while well-intended, is not biblical. It is based on a couple proof texts, badly mishandled and taken out of context, and is, is not helpful. So we don't want to teach uh, that. Number nine, teaching a direct connection between praise and God's presence. In almost any discussion of worship today, you hear people quote Psalm 22.3, which says God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. That phrase is more often quoted about worship than I think anything else and today. And it's just assumed that that means that when we praise, God comes. That God's presence comes when people praise. The problem is, first of all, I hope you can see that's theologically weird. That That's confusing. And second of all, it's not what this teaches. It's not what that phrase says. And if you look at the context, this heart-wrenching prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 22, he is not saying that if we praise, God will come. That, that's just not at all what's going on there. So even though this verse has been very influential in modern American worship, the Bible does not teach that if we start praising, God will come. That is not a healthy biblical idea. What it does say, Psalm 100 verse 4, is that we should come into God's presence with our praise. Bring your praise and now draw near to God with it. Come into his presence. Not the other way around. Not start praising and then see if God might come in response to your praising. Number 10, we want to avoid teaching a direct connection between music and God's presence. So too often worship and music has been joined together as if they are the same thing. And the problem when you do that is that it starts to sound like God's presence can't come if there isn't music. As if music is the key to his presence. And that is... I'll pick a word. My, my mom would say baloney or hogwash, one or the other. Um, it's just not true at all that God can't show up unless we have a band. Um, so we, we want to avoid teaching a connection between music and God's presence. Okay, those are some dangers to avoid. However, everybody from the reformer John Calvin to the Presbyterian Ligon Duncan to the Baptist Mark Dever all agree that the gathered church draws near to God. And that there is a presence of God in gathered worship that is unique. It's not identical to when we have the Spirit with us away from the gathered church. So I couldn't figure out how to make this a brief, simple list. So it's a big, long, wordy list, and I apologize for that. But here are some reasons why I think we should come to gathered worship seeking to draw near to God. Um, to, in a sense come into his presence, draw near to his presence together. Number one, <clears throat> because God promised that Gentile nations would recognize the presence of God among his people. We don't have time to look at that, but 1 Corinthians 14.25, we could say, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Um, the nations want to join themselves to God's people because they're convinced that God is there. That's number one. Number two, 
because those who have God's presence should rejoice in that presence by faith. Here's what I mean. And I'll, we'll look at First Peter 1 in just a second. In restaurants these days, you so often see people at a meal together on their phones, right? And you wonder if occasionally they forget that they're even with someone else. Like they look up from their phone and they're like, oh, right, hi, <laughs> forgot you were here. We can do that with God. He is with us. His spirit is in us. But we might have totally lost any awareness that God is with us. So the key word is in 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Talking about Jesus. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So you see the word? Believe. We don't see his presence with us. We can forget that he is present with us. But the key to remembering God's presence is faith. It is believing that he said he's here. I might feel his presence or I might not feel his presence. But he said it. And so I believe it and can then rejoice that God is here with us. We don't have to have a particular song to feel the presence of God. What we need is faith to believe the promises about his presence. Number three, we can think of worship as drawing near to God together because those who have been brought near to God still need to seek God. The Old Testament has many beautiful calls to seek the Lord, like Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. And we might ask, okay, well, if that was true for old covenant believers, is that still true for us now that we have his spirit in us? Do we still need to seek his presence continually? And I would say, yes, it's still true for us. Partly because of Hebrews 12, like we talked about. Hebrews 12 says, you have come to the heavenly worship gathering so draw near. Isn't that interesting? You have been brought near, so draw, draw near. Yes, we jumped ahead to Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God, whoever would draw near to God, you see how I'm connecting that to Hebrews 12? Because Hebrews 12 says you have been brought near to God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ. That goes right with Hebrews 12, doesn't it? The heavenly gathering. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are in God. That's what it says, right? So seek those things. Seek to draw near to him. Number four, because those who have God's presence need to seek to have their heart in harmony with his. So this is what we learned in our Galatians series, right? Walking in the spirit means having our heart in harmony with his. And the word Paul uses in Galatians 5.25 is a word that can literally refer to having your steps coordinated with another person. 
walking in step with them. You can walk with someone and not be in step with them at all. Maybe, you know, there's not a, it's an imperfect illustration, but maybe there's a little bit of a parallel with a married couple who's living in the same house, but their hearts are not in harmony with each other at all. You can have the spirit in you, God's presence with you, and not be in step with him, not be in harmony with him in your heart. So we need to then draw near, even though his spirit is in us, we need to draw near to him that our hearts might be in harmony with his. Number five, because the Bible calls us to draw near to God with our prayer and praise. Hosea 14, take with you words and return to the Lord. Take your words and go to him. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come into God's presence with your prayer. Prayer itself is drawing near to God. So when as a church family we pray together, we are drawing near to God together. Number six, because God draws near to those who draw near to him. James 4, 8. And Hebrews says, draw near together. So draw near to God and he draws near to us. Even though we've already been brought near in Christ, there is a there's a nearer that can happen relationally. Okay? How are we doing? I know we're flying along. We're working through a list of reasons why we can be confident that even though God's presence is with us, we still seek to draw near to God together. Number seven. We should gather together to draw near to God because God's presence is evident in the God-given gifts with which we serve one another when we gather. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That is a fascinating way to refer to the gifts of the Spirit. He refers to them as manifestations of the Spirit, evidence that the Spirit is here when we take our gifts and serve one another. When we edify one another through our God-given giftedness, it's evidence of the presence of God here in those manifestations of the Spirit. So if you want to see the Spirit manifested, then get together with your church family and serve other people and let other people serve you. And it will be a manifestation of God's presence. Number eight, God's character is seen in the Christ-likeness of one another when we gather. Crystal and I have this verse on our bedroom wall, actually. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Everywhere. I know that sometimes when we walk into church, we smell sin, don't we? In other people. Because we are redeemed sinners, but we're still sinners. So we stink sometimes. So sometimes church smells like sin. But even when church smells like sin, there are also other people in that church family right then who smell like Jesus. 
The gathered church is a place where you can smell the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ because there are people who are growing to be more like Jesus here. They smell more like Jesus. That is a manifestation of the presence of God. Number nine, will you turn to Matthew 18 with me? Number nine says, Jesus reassured the church that they can effectively carry out even the most difficult parts of life as a church family because he is with them when they gather. So the verse is Matthew 18, 20, but the context is so important. So look with me, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this is talking about the most difficult parts of church life. When you're trying to restore a persistently sinning brother and you're having to make difficult decisions and you're praying and praying together about it, And Jesus reassures them, I am with you. Remember the word church in verse 17 means an assembly. When we gather as Jesus' people in a church family, even if it's messy and difficult, he wants us to be certain that God is with us. Number 10, because the church is the temple of God on earth, not just as an abstract theory, but in active gathering. We are the temple as we are actively being joined together and being built together into a holy temple. We are joined and held together when each part is working properly. This is so important. It means that when we say that the church is the temple of God on earth today, we don't just mean you guys all have the spirit in you. And so we could kind of think of you all like as, kind of like the temple of God because the spirit's in you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have the spirit in you. So you are the temple of God being built together as the temple when each part is functioning. When we are gathering, when we are actively being the temple, we're not the temple of God when we're just spread out doing our own thing off on our own, abstractly. We're the temple of God concretely in active gathering. Matt Merker writes, God's dwelling place has a congregational shape. If we hope to encounter God's presence when we come to church, we ought to expect to find him in and with one another 
rather than primarily in our own personal feelings and intuitions, meet God by meeting with his spirit-filled people. We are the temple in active gathering, being built together. Number 11, God is present when his living and active word is taught, preached, read, sung, and spoken about. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, My speech and my preaching was not in enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. How about that? Earlier we had the manifestation of the Spirit in the spiritual gifts. Now, in demonstration of the Spirit in the preaching. That's what happened in 1 Corinthians 14, right? It was the conviction that demonstrated the presence of God. Hebrews 4 says that the, God's Word is living and active. Ephesians 6 says it is the sword of the Spirit. So whenever we take God's Word out of the sheath in our services, God is present, present in His living Word. And if He works in our hearts with His Word, we'll know God's here. Even though we believed it by faith, we'll experience it as He works in our hearts with his word. And then number 12, because the old covenant joy of coming to the temple together becomes the new covenant joy of drawing near to God together through Christ. And hopefully that makes a lot of sense if you were here last Sunday and for our our Bible study on worship in Hebrews. We're already part of the heavenly gathering because Jesus entered the true tabernacle. He brought the true sacrifice, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we're already part of that. So instead of saying, let's go to the temple together, we say, let's draw near to God together. That's Hebrews 10. Let us draw near, not neglecting to meet together. Here on earth, we should obey God's call for us to keep drawing near to him and to do that together. So just like the Israelites would say, let's go up to Jerusalem together. We say, let's draw near to God together. Hey, brother, sister, it's Sunday morning. Would you like to draw near to God with me? I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. So in New Covenant language, I was glad when they said to me, let's draw near to God together. And we, it, it's essentially together in the way God intends it. And so that means if I come and I don't have any interest in drawing near to God, I'm like a, a I'm like a, infected toe (laughs) that makes it harder. You follow what I'm saying? The more our hearts are coming together saying, let's draw near to God, the more we come together and draw near to God. And the more people who are like, I don't want to be here. I don't care. The more it's like a limping body as it goes, right? Worship comes from our our hearts together. Here's a, a closing quote and then Ooh, we have two minutes to look at two songs. Okay. The Lord engage, this is from the, the Puritan David Clarkson. So this is, this is 400-year-old language. The Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, and he means comforting, that's the way he's using that word, his comforting, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, Then these several streams are united and meet in one, so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream. In public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. That is 
It's well said. All right, so here you go. Quick test. Uh, Yeah, we have no time. Okay, next slide. (laughs) Two songs, one current, one old. All right? I want you to see if this is, if you feel like this is biblical stuff. It's all about your feelings. Here we go. Holy Spirit, living breath of God. So this is, this is a last 20 years, Keith, Guest, Keith Getty, Stuart Townend text. We sing it. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. All right? What do you think? How do you feel about that? (laughs) Let's keep going. Next verse. Holy Spirit, come abide within. May your joy be seen in all I do. Love enough to cover every sin in each thought and deed and attitude. Kindness to the greatest and the least. Does this sound anything like Galatians 5? Kindness to the greatest and the least. Gentleness that sows the path of peace. Turn my striving into works of grace. Breath of God, show Christ in all I do. Next verse. Holy Spirit, from creation's birth, you have been giving life to all that God has made. Show your power once again on earth. Cause your church to hunger for your ways. Let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road of sacrifice that in unity the face of Christ will be clear for all the world to see. Okay, so that kind of a text. Um, Could that be misunderstood in some of the ways that we talked about on the first page of our sheet? It could. However, I would say that it is the language that the church has historically used and understood in a healthy way. So like, if you go back one verse, David, to verse two, when he says, Holy Spirit, come abide within, we might say, oh no, that sounds like it's asking for another Pentecost or the Spirit's gone and we need him to come again. But the very next line says, may your joy be seen in all I do. Clearly what he means by come abide within is let my heart be in harmony with yours like Galatians 5, that I might be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Let me be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And back in verse one, um, Breathe new life into my willing soul. He's talking about renewal of our hearts like we always need from the Spirit of God. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me again today. So, so is it language that could be misunderstood? Yeah, it could be. But let's go on to the next song. I'm going to show you just how this is. This is so this is an Isaac Watts text. Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove. And see how similar this is from 300 years earlier. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening, life-giving powers, kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. See how we trifle here below, fond of these earthly toys. Our souls, how heavily they go. I talked this morning about dullness, right? Our hearts, how heavily they go to reach eternal joys. In vain we tune our formal songs. In vain we strive to rise. Hosanna's languish on our tongues and our devotion dies. Dear Lord, and shall we ever live at this poor dying rate? Our love so faint, so cold to thee and thine to us so great. Come, Holy Spirit, 
Heavenly dove, with all thy quickening powers, come shed abroad a Savior's love, and that shall kindle ours. So, again, could that be misunderstood to mean something that's kind of uh, unbiblical? Yes, but it does not at all need to be understood that way. And this is historically the church has called for the Spirit to come, not in those senses that we talked about on page one, but in those senses that we talked about on the back of your, your handout. So hopefully that helps. And those are all the reasons why I think, those are some of the reasons why I think it's appropriate for us to say that the purpose of gathered worship is to draw near to God. You see, there's a difference. I didn't just say the purpose of gathered worship is to edify and praise for the glory of God. But the purpose of gathered worship is to obey Hebrews and draw near to God together as a church family through edification and praise for his glory. All right, hopefully that's helpful. We're over time, but only by three minutes. The Lord bless you all. Bye now.